0: Former U.S. national rugby team captain. Team captain. Head coach and general manager. General manager. Now, the co founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks and Heritage Sports Ventures. Joining me today is Brett Gosper. The Melbourne, Australia native was previously the CEO of World Rugby for nine very, very successful years. He is now head of Europe and the UK for the NFL, where he's bringing gridiron to a whole new continent. There's a lot we're about to learn, and it's just so excited to have you on today, Brett. Welcome.
1: Um, Good to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks
0: for having me. Yeah, we're going to jump into a quick word game, if you don't mind, uh, and we'll go from there. The first thing that comes to mind when I say a word, (laughs) Advertising
1: um mccann pink bow ties yeah racing
0: italy sevens
1: Uh, zebras
0: rugby world cup
1: japan melbourne aussie rules
0: (laughs) awesome awesome so you did you grew up in australia
1: right that's correct yes
0: did you you played you played union in a in a primarily Aussie
1: rules locale? Aussie rules place. I Actually, at an earlier stage, around the six to 10 year age group, I was actually living in Sydney, which got me the introduction to rugby and my family moved to Melbourne when I was about 10 and was really probably settling on Aussie rules a bit. But then my father got moved to London and reacquainted with rugby at a school in England for a couple of years before coming back and finishing school in Australia. And by then I was a full convert to rugby despite being in a, an Aussie rules Mad capital, which Melbourne is where that where, where Aussie rules all began. Yeah, what position did you play in which sport? <laughs> in union, yeah. In You're union, right. in sport. the only sport that matters. Come on, yeah. No, yeah. I yeah. think yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you might be asking me a trick Aussie rules yeah. question. Yeah. Um, no, I was a fly half at school, a center uh, most of my uh club career and a few quite a few representative games on the wing as well for different uh, selections australia trialist trial for australia twice didn't get the nod at either time um played for australia on 21 as well and i left australia when i was 22 to play one season in france and that one season became nine seasons and and I stayed 15 years in Paris before moving uh, to the UK subsequently after Which that. is
0: pretty epic. When that Aussie, 20 uh, under 21s, what year was that round?
1: So that was, we talking just after the war, um, it was, um, uh, 1981. So that was like Ella brothers, like it was coming Ella brothers. I had two of the brothers in that under 21. So in fact, nine of that team went on to be the team on the field went on to be wallabies, um, so it was a pretty rich, uh, under 20 we lost that day at the Sydney career ground to the junior All Blacks. Uh, I can't remember the exact score, but it was a, a very close. We kicked two penalties. They scored a converted, try, uh, uh, and so they won the game. I think it was at that point. Absurd yeah. talent on the field
0: for both teams. Now, do, were you like, I speak French, so I'm going to go to Paris or you're like, I just need to get out of Dodges. Just...
1: No, do you know, it was between, it was, it was after my second trial. And I knew the Wallabies were going to Britain for a full tour. And I knew that I wanted to get fit. Well, they were getting fit in off season because I wanted to make sure that I was com- competitive for a Wallaby Jersey and just reached out to a few contacts and someone said, well, the, this Paris team is interested in bringing you across and looking after you and you won't have to pay for anything. And they'll look, you know, they'll completely look after you. And that sounded pretty good to me. I was a bit of a Francophile, but a failure at French at school, but I, went back to see my French teacher years afterwards, but unfortunately he had deceased by then, So I couldn't show off my new, new yeah, some credit for it, but there you
0: go. And, and, and so wrestling was interested in you and you're like, okay, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to try this out.
1: Give me, yeah, give myself, think, yeah, you know. Exactly. They said, you know, we'll take you for a season. Uh, I played well enough in that season for them to want me to come back. Um, and, uh, so I stayed on. I actually was a, a. uh, an intern at Ogilvy, which is an ad agency at the time. And uh, I went and saw Ogilvy in Paris and said, take me on for six months. Won't cost you anything. If you want to keep me after that, it'll cost you something. It was the days of semi-professionalism. I mean, in France, they've always been paid something for playing rugby and there's always been a bit of a market for it. Um, It was more about in France, if if you're an amateur, that means that, uh, it's not your sole job, you know, your sole job when you're a professional is rugby, then that's, that's what a professional is. Whereas obviously places like England, Australia, where any amount paid meant you were ruining your, your professional status and you were, were no longer allowed to play the sport, you'd have to go off and play the professional, right. courses, which was rugby league in those days. Um, so I, I stayed on and, and, and played. It was a very good team. It was probably not in the top 40 clubs when I first arrived. Really? Due to a very heavy recruitment program, including some, you know, very famous internationals like Jean-Pierre Reeve and Laurent Cabin and Frank Manel and others, um, rose to be the top club in, in the in the country in 1990 and 87 when they played in the final as well in both of those in pink bow ties. Yeah, Fantastic. Um, time, but we really,
0: was it a time where at halftime, everybody was smoking, like
1: quite a few French people that did smoke at half. Yeah. Um, and you know, some of the famous internationals like, uh, Serge Blanco and that, Yeah, um, lots of tales a, a, a about them, but it was a pretty, pretty professional attitude and, you know, people were training each day and, and so on, but there was a, uh, definitely a DNA of amateurism Across the sport at that time, which meant you could live two lives, do it, build a professional career while you were building a rugby career, and I think we were the last of the Mohicans, the last generation that was able to do that.
0: Was it with initiatives like the pink bow ties and things like that? Is that just because you guys collectively internally had a culture you just wanted to have fun, or was that actually like let's market the game in a way that may attract a different audience?
1: I think it was for the first. It was definitely. Yeah. it was a collective culture that was having fun. Um, We kind of uh, rocketed into um, awareness that year because we're winning games that we hadn't normally won and we're rising up the pole. And each week we'd look at each other and say, this is the last time we're going to be on TV this week, because we'll probably get knocked out. So let's do something to be remembered by. And we kept winning. So those events to be remembered by kept happening and uh, it culminated in the, in the, in the pink bow ties for the, and it it generated, it, it transcended the sport in France, it generated television audiences that were far greater for a club final in France than they'd ever been before. And there were articles written and, and so on. So it was, you know, I think the final in 87 had an 8 million audience, um, which is like a six nations game just simply because there was so much hype around the pranks that we were committing at that time.
0: Yeah. Almost what Stade France did in the two thousands were similar.
1: Exactly. I think they took the baton over cause they took the pink color yeah. And they did <laughs> everything. At, at a coming of out of eggshells and <laughs> all of that.
0: Yeah. Did you guys really ride in on bicycles for a real game?
1: Yeah, that would have happened. R- riding in on bicycles and playing in berets and 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 bald weeks for another game. And all, yeah, all sorts of. Different. We tried to get approval to land the Colombe Stadium, which is our home stadium, and the Chariots of Fire, um, Paris 24 Olympic Stadium actually, Yeah. is our stadium. We tried to get fly. Helicopter approval from the mayor's office to f- to fly the team in in a large helicopter at one point, but we, we were, <laughs> not giving, we're not given permission. Yeah, to that's a that stretch. up, I think, at that point. You know? that's a stretch.
0: And that, and then, so you were starting, you did the internship uh, for Ogilvy, and how did you continue to grow your advertising career?
1: Yeah, I sort of I, I was with Ogilvy for about eight years, and it was at the back end of my career, probably hitting around thirty, where. It was just getting impossible to do my ad career and play seriously i was starting to the coach then was a, a very famous french player called robert paparan board a, a a a prop um with a prop mentality and <laughs> I didn't accept the fact that i was missing the odd training session yeah, the swear words so, and then you have to do something yeah yeah, yeah. exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. you know and i i i just got to the point where fortunately i was starting to earn enough money to to relinquish my rugby, which was supporting me quite largely at that point in time. And and my career just overtook my preoccupation versus my rugby career. And 30 was about right too, because I'd played, you know, eight or nine seasons in France, I played a couple of off seasons in England as well and played, you know, quite a few seasons in Australia. So it added up to a career of about 15 years, really. So by then 30, I was ready to probably move on. Did you stay in Paris as your career? I did. I stayed in Paris uh, till I was about 35. Um, worked. I, I, I changed agencies out of Ogilvy, an agency called TBWA, known in America as Shite Day, more than TBWA, um, and was the deputy MD of their agency there in France, and then was recruited by another French group called Havas to um, set up or to unify a lot of their units in 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 England. Uh, in London and I did that with a creative partner and was a partner in a very catchily named agency called Euro RSCG Wenek Gosper. Um, <laughs> and uh, okay. you know, to prove that a name can't hold you back, we actually did all right and became a top 10 London agency through that period of the of really the the, 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 the mid to 90, 90s to early 2000s. Industrial specialization or generalists across the board? You no, know, we were, were brand agency essentially, but yeah. also media buying and, 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 and planning and buying and, and there was a, you know, a group with direct marketing and sales promotion and everything, but we're ultimately in those days, a, a very strong brand campaign agency. Um, and you know, in the days when, you know, some, some brands, when they changed their campaigns, it would make the, uh, the news, uh, Yeah, news at 10 or whatever it was, Guinness or British Airways or something like that. That's great. How did you make that jump then into world rugby and the
0: head of world rugby?
1: Well, then I, when I, well, I did 10 years with that, I, I sold my, my ownership in that, in that agency, was recruited by McCann and moved to New York for about five years where I worked with McCann Erickson. I was running the New York agency for that period, came back and ran the European agency after that five years. Yeah. And after about five or six years in Europe, someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, used to play rugby, didn't you? Would you be interested in this? They're, they're looking for a CEO at World Rugby. And, um, I went in for some of the interviews and some of the chats and got more interested in it and they, they, they eliminated a few people and I ended up getting the job through uh, a huge mistake by, by World Rugby at the time, or the IRB as they were called, <laughs> yes. then, and hadn't worked in the sports category, but obviously had a, a marketing and a media background. But certainly from a sports marketing perspective, early on in those, in that initial period, I was finding my way a bit, uh, dare I say, bluffing my way to a certain extent, as I just landed and got got my you know feet under the desk and understood a bit more about the environment and so on. And, and I was fortunate to be there during a, a strong period for, for, for rugby's growth. What did you
0: see when you were going through those interviews and you were deciding whether, I mean, really successful career in advertising to change and be a part of this unwieldy beast for lack of a better term. What did you see at the time that convinced you that that was the right decision for you?
1: Yeah. I I was worried that it would be very uh, bureaucratic and clerical and voting and, and not particularly commercial and not particularly innovative. That was my concern going in because the conversations. Uh, increased, I saw the scope to affect, to affect things, but also saw the commercial size and growth of rugby world cup, um, in terms of its broadcast audience, its television rights, broadcast rights, sponsorship growth. And that's probably the area I felt quite at home in initially. And then obviously you had to get into issues of player welfare game laws. Um, you know, the politics of ownership and, and, and so on of different competitions and so on. And they were areas that while I wasn't, you know, that experienced in, I did speak the language of rugby and had in, in the minds of most people around the table, a certain legitimacy to talk about rugby because I'd played at a reasonable level, so all, all, all of that was, was helpful as, as I, as I gained my feet, but I did have a, I think I had a good commercial and marketing sense, um. And we we're able to to market ourselves, change our positioning to a certain extent. I, I saw things as a marketer through how do you position a brand and the IRB to me wasn't a particularly user-friendly brand for right. the audience and, and for fans. And I wanted to take it from being a, the IRB, which is the international rugby board, which is a very introspective labeling of, a, of an organization to taking what good successful brands are is not just uh you know, strong brands, but they become a movement in themselves. And so to me, world rugby was a statement of intent. We wanted to become a world game, but it was a little bit of a confirmation that we'd already become that to a certain extent, but that we wanted to be a movement, not just a brand and that everyone could be part of that movement that was world rugby, all stakeholders, all fans, everyone.
0: So you were coming in, right? Uh, New Zealand world cup was over. The Olympics had been awarded. Exactly, because That was on the horizon, London, um, world
1: uh, men's world cup on the horizon, Olympics on the horizon. Exactly. So there was good momentum. I knew there was yep. a, I knew we were in the Olympics at that point. And so we had to steer the code into that period where we were gearing up for Rio and have a successful Olympics in, in Rio with all the stakeholders and so on, um, moved into a successful world cup into, into England, which had been appointed and um went through the process of the of 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 building for the japan world cup which was probably the most challenging dossier of of those world cups which turned out also to be probably the most rewarding um and also you know was part of the process that selected uh france for 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 the 2023 rugby world cup as well you
0: look and you look back your record participation in terms of the number of athletes referees coaches who are participating globally record audience sizes, world cups that financially, uh, better than the previous ones, you know, better broadcasts. What is, what is that down to?
1: I think, look, the momentum of the sport itself, I think there's a, you know, the more people are exposed to rugby, the more rugby grows. It's a, it's a, you know, it is in itself an attractive product. We are always, um, confident of our product. Um, I think sevens helped a lot. I think the Olympic inclusion. Gave a lot of attention to the sport, and also gave a lot of equality from a, a, a women's, men's uh, proportion and perspective. It's helped grow the women's game, and therefore interest of uh, a large slate of the population as well who were directly, more directly involved in the sport, perhaps than than they had been. Um, so I think the Olympic thing was it was absolutely critical. I think you know having a World Cup in a pl- in, in in certainly. England and in Japan that you couldn't hope for two bigger impactful world cups over that period. I guess France is the only one that could right. rival, uh, those two in terms of them being media ours, rugby and, you know, media and industrial size, com- you know, countries with, with huge impact and populations. Um, but look, I think, I think the organization works well and I, and I, and I think whether it be grassroots. Um, as I said, sevens, but also just the get into rugby program, the mass participation programs that were being run by the unions themselves. Um, but the funding was increasing when world cup, uh, broadcast rights increased. there's more money going back into the game and therefore you have more money to market the game. I think that was a, a critical part of what we were doing too. Yeah, my time at USA Rugby, head
0: coach and then general manager, high performance, you know, we obviously worked with your performance staff quite a bit and, um, you know, the largest of of those dollars coming in and really helped us on the performance side. And I guess, you know, but that's been happening kind of decade upon decade for countries like the U.S. What do we need to do and, 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 you know, to make that a commercial reality so that doesn't have to be the case, right? And I think, that was the stumbling part. We
1: couldn't schedule a test the next year, you know, so there was no actual, well, it was always, yeah. always being the, the, the problem. And, you know, yeah. World Cup funding was there to make sure World Cup was competitive. Therefore, from a high performance point of view, make sure that that second tier of, of, of 10 nations outside of the top 10, which we know from the six nations and the, and the, and, and the rugby championship outside the next 10 have to be competitive at a rugby world cup. And so, you know, uh, High performance money coaching um, was very important for those, but but now what's important is that those countries participate uh, in in the big tournaments or play regularly against the big teams, and that was what we were trying to to solve as I exited um, through a, you know the attempt at the Nations Championship, and I think right. iterations of that will see the light of day as as we go forward. Um, the other quick fix for a country is to host a rugby world cup that helps hugely doesn't sustain the model it it, it needs to be followed up by ensuring that those teams are playing at the highest level with the highest teams japan will be a case in study of that i think everyone wants to play japan coming out of the japan world cup but hopefully that continues to maintain itself and japan have a place to continue playing competitive rugby in competitions that are meaningful yeah Um, and in the same way if the u.s Get a world cup which is looking positive um in 31 then you would hope by the leading up to that and post that the U, the the us insert themselves into a sustainable competition at the highest level yeah
0: and then and more more important are at least certainly as important as the on-field product as the audience generation
1: right and well success succession hours and, and i think in the states again sevens played a certain role to gain interest because the u.s team in in rugby sevens was a very strong side with a very good backstory yeah individually and collectively um but uh you know you, you need your fans and your fans come when they see success of a national team so you, yeah they'll have that success the big games like you know the all blacks at soldier field etc all, are, are all great promotions uh, of the game but to sustain fans you need a national connectors yeah you need national team that's 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 winning and
0: creating pride for the locals sevens. What happens with sevens outside of the Olympics? Do you think, is it a commercially viable, um, part of the sport?
1: I think certainly COVID put a big hiccup in the system for sevens. Um, yeah. it, it, it is a commercially viable sport. They should have find the right formula, frequency and, 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 and game model to put that on. It's a spectacular game, whether it be on television or, 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 you know, in the stadium itself, um, It's a fantastically popular sport, again, for broadcast and in the state for Olympics. It's one of the fastest tickets sold at the Olympics. Um, So, yeah, I think there's definitely, but they just have to find the right combination of how many premium tournaments do they have, how many feeder tournaments do they have, how do they manage the duality of the men and the women's game in in all of that, and how do they sit beside the 15s game um, and, and it be sustainable financially. So all of that's being worked out. It's a, yeah, it's not, the, it's, a, it's not an easy thing to work. Out, but I know there's lots of modelling being done on that currently, and some good creative ideas that are happening. But it, again, I think COVID put a uh, a stall in the system on sevens more more even than in the 15s in many ways. Yeah. But it's so sort of built on 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 live audience. And as a world series, it's
0: so hard to generate momentum because you're only in one location at one time, then six weeks till the next one, you're watching it midnight, middle of the night. If you want to watch it, it, it yeah, those are some commercial challenges.
1: Totally, the actual game, the, you know, the, the tournament story is a difficult one to tell when it's so far apart when you think that, you know, the NFL has 17, 16, 17 weeks, regular 17 weeks, regular season and so on. Then that story can be told very quickly. Yeah, And succinctly, well, yeah, the, the, the sevens tournament is, is more difficult. It's always had trouble conquering the broadcast market too because of the length of the programming. And that was also something that needed addressing so you could have bite-sized broadcasting um, that could be spectacular and very saleable. And that was yeah. another issue that needed solving.
0: And You know, I you think know, you just brought up that point about the NFL and the packaging it, you know, now 17 weeks and similar to what we're trying to do with Major League Rugby. So it's, it's a digestible season but it's not still, you know, still we're, we're not chasing dollars for an extra couple thousand people in the stands for 28
1: games you know where
0: there's too much supply
1: exactly the the, the narrative is more controllable in that sense and and, and fresher uh, the trouble is in lots, lots of parts of the world more games has meant more inventory must mean more money but it starts to be negative after a while if you you know too much rugby can be a bad thing yeah so
0: You, nine great years, world rugby. What, um, what was the impetus for the move to NFL UK, NFL Europe?
1: Um, I mean, the impetus, I wasn't looking to move, but I was approached and the idea just grew in my head. I think two, two things grew in my head was one, it was probably time after nine years, um, to, to stand aside and let someone else get on with it. Um, I, I probably felt like a bit of a change. I was ready for it. Um. It's, it's quite a it's an absorbing environment very political yeah um, but fully absorb absorbing because it's sport and you love it and all the rest of it so nine years felt like a lot more than nine years in in some ways um, not because it was difficult hard yeah. it was but, but it was more, yeah. more because it was just intense uh, and um, so at the same time I then had this opportunity and in my stage of career time I didn't get that there was going to be that many years to, to take on new, um, challenges and new, uh, experiences. And, and I was flattered that the NFL spoke to me and they were highly interesting in how they were laying out the future outside of the States and particularly in Europe and the role I could play in that. And so I was uh, very receptive and in the end felt that it was a, a good time to, to make the move, there was enough difference between what I was doing at world rugby and NFL to make it fresh, but there was some connectivity and alignment in terms of objectives and some of the experiences that, that meant that there was some comfort there as well. Also yeah, awesome. so yeah. completely been to the unknown.
0: Yeah. So, but world rugby are going from many, many countries. A lot of them have different commercial needs and competition needs to NFL, which has a group of owners that are very, very clear about what they're trying to accomplish and what they do accomplish. Um, how has that change been going from where you've had to lead multiple, multiple different thoughts and opinions to an organization that's from the outside clearly, you know, has had years and years of clear direction.
1: Yeah. And I think that's how it is on the inside too. You sense an organization knows exactly what it's about, knows what it stands for and, and, and knows what it's trying to achieve commercially, financially um and and in terms of the attractiveness of the game that they're promoting and so on so complete alignment amongst the owners um and 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 the league itself um and you know drawn together by getting you know doing better what they do um and and having a big bigger impact on on their environment than they and they've had i mean that in a good way so yeah the the total alignment and understanding of the interdependency of all elements of it. And, and again, you're comparing a league with a, with a governing body. It's a, it's, right. it's, it's, an unfair comparison in some ways on a, on a, on a governing body, which by definition handles diverse interests and, and, and markets that are at different stages of development and so on. And, a, and as the NFL expands and, 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 and pushes more internationally, it'll also, you know, meet some complexity as well, but generally speaking, it's a very aligned league with its, with clear business objectives in front of it. Yeah. So
0: now that you've been there, if you had to go back to world rugby and take some of the lessons that you've seen in the NFL, whether that's measuring of markets, what, what would be the kind of top of the list for, for that?
1: I think, um, and it, it, in some ways it would have been quite interesting to have done this job before the other job. Um, I I definitely, the alignment of stakeholders, it's not an easy lesson to learn because there's there's misalignment if that's a word um uh, in 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 rugby in many ways because of the history and the economics of different countries and so on so not you can't go back and say, hey here's a good idea guys let's all align because that has been a work in progress, and I think there's been some gradual progress in the rugby sphere on that on that element I think it's there the two things would be their understanding of their fan base their Data analysis and analytics is unbelievably, um, frequent and deep. And th- that's the first thing. So they really do understand, and we have weekly panels and we're, you know, dissecting those weekly panels, uh, on a constant basis to understand the lifetime value of, of the audience that we're, that we're dealing with and the fans that we're dealing with. So the fan centricity of it yeah, rather than the organization centricity. Yeah, they're very outward looking because they're not fighting amongst each other or competing or perceived to be competing against each other they're focused outside not in and I think that's a a, a real advantage the other thing is they they have because they've been around a long time and they've developed this alignment they have tools at their disposal which they've grown over time which are extraordinary extraordinary in marketing terms from you know an OTT platform like Game Pass um, a video game like you know, yeah. Madden, um, a, a consumer products business that, that, that creates opportunities across the board, um, you know, broadcast success, uh, free to air and pay in the markets, which which they, are doing well in the, 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 the whole gambit of, you know, marketing tools, uh, is, is, has got to be the envy of any, uh, sports yeah. entity. It's incredible. And in the States, the fact that they're across four or five networks, rather than just focusing on one or two or one, the whole environment's promoting them and, and, and growing this. It's space absurd. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. It's a behemoth, but then probably the aggregation
0: of that data, there's probably a lot of really high quality work that they've developed over time to do so. Totally. Totally. That's, you know, it, the data is one thing, but then your ability to interpret it is, to is do do the aggregate. right thing with it? Yeah. And yeah, so. In analogies for Major League Rugby, we're bringing rugby, you know, from a, a, the professional game of rugby to the United States effectively. Similar to, I guess, you could look at NFL um, as a commercial entity, bringing football to a larger audience. Um, you know, the work that's been done, games in Wembley each year, you know, Tottenham Hotspurs. Now, to Germany. Why, why Germany? What, what, what's like, what, what indications do you guys it's have? Almost
1: That's, why, it's almost why hasn't Germany happened before rather than why go? Cause they used to have the, the,
0: the, the league, the football league there, right? Yeah. That, you know, a
1: lot of the, of the, you know, the NFL, Europe previous world league was, 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 yeah. was in Germany with some famous names and brands and so on at the time that drew big crowds, um, in Germany in the early two thousands and so on. And, but it, but it was costing the league a lot uh, in investment and um and from about 2007 onwards the games uh, of bringing regular season NFL games to London began and 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 that was creating a lot of interest across Europe not just in 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 London or England itself but germany retains a huge passion for the sport and a and and a huge number of fans there's 19 million Casual fans in Germany versus 16 million in the UK. They've both got about three million avid fans. Um, Germany's the biggest consumer products market f- uh, for the NFL outside of the United States, including Canada and and the and the biggest uh, OTT Game Pass international Game Pass. Oh wow! Subscription outside of North America. So Germany, uh, you know, as I say, it's why weren't we in Germany early, and so we've recruited as general manager for Germany. We're setting an office up there and we'll have our first regular season game, uh, in, in the, in the Bayern Munich stadium, um, later this year, which will be hugely exciting. And and that That's Once you've got games in a market, you're building all sorts of relevance around those games to create momentum within the market, which is what's happened here in the UK over the last uh, 15, 20 years
0: so is there a participation part to that where you know flag rugby kids rugby or anything else like that that there, goes along with
1: that yeah no there is indeed uh, flag rugby is a growing sport here in the uk it's in you know hundreds of schools here in the uk um it's it's men and women girls and boys um it's it, i i think we're probably more discreet in our marketing with that than we than we should be and could be and and, and more than we will be in the future um but it is a, gro- a growth, sport in this, in this part of the world. And it's like any participation, mass participation sport for a code. It really does create strong links with people who come into contact with it and come into contact with an American football at that, at that point in time. And it stays with people. And so it's a, it's a great conversion sport that in itself is, is, is a, is a spectacular sport and there are certain ambitions for that to potentially become an Olympic sport. Um. Maybe, you know, as early as, as 2028 in Los Angeles would be the ideal entry for one of those, what they call, um, what do they call them? I can't remember the name of the sport is, but where the local organizing committee chooses two or three extra sports outside. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. 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 So that's, that, that's possible. And that would be great for the sport.
0: Is that, is, are there, how do you guys manage the player welfare? I mean, it's similar to what you would have had to do with rugby and, um, concerns on uh, head trauma and all of those pieces.
1: Yeah. And it's a big preoccupation with, with, with the league and they are incredibly meticulous. And I, uh, you know, always thought rugby and I still believe rugby do uh, amazing things in the area of, of, of concussion and play well for both in the, uh, in the promoting of awareness of it, but in also preventative, yeah. uh, uh, lawmaking. Um, not just the management of the injury, but prevention of the injury, and the way they 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 build their laws and so on. And equally, I think the NFL is is spectacular in what they do in that in that area, and and the constant law changes have been around player welfare improvement, and and helmet technology and so on has been you know dramatic in in that area. So yeah, I'm full of respect for what the NFL are doing in this area. Rugby football fans different. Um. Not in London, <laughs> <laughs> yes. say that because when you go to a game in, in London and probably it'll be the same in, in Munich as well. And Germany, um, people are so pleased to see an NFL game. They come with all of the different Jersey colors and, yeah. and teams. yeah, it's very family and it's a lot of fun and it's a big day out and yeah, it's like that in the States too, but it's obviously more partisan. Yeah. Um, and, and, Percorial. yeah, exactly. So. Look, I think it's 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 not dissimilar to, 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 to an international yeah. rugby crowd here in, in the United Kingdom, um, yeah. But yeah, the, a US NFL crowd slightly slightly different um, than a rugby crowd. A rugby crowd um, has Tom Brady to play there. in Munich, and off. So, so. <laughs> <Well, that'll be laughs> yeah. walks there. Okay. I mean, the people we wanted to get a glimpse of him in Germany, and you'll get. For, this is the other thing, you know, international rugby crowds. You often get non-connoisseurs, people being introduced to the game for the first time. Unlike a club game where you've usually got you know hardcore connoisseurs, and I think you know these you know NFL games, we we estimate that fifty percent of the of the audience of these games have never seen an NFL game before. Wow! So they're probably rugby fans anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's a great lesson for us as we're building out this new sport, relatively speaking, on the professional basis. So, taking the lessons you've had from world rugby and the NFL, if you know, you're kind of managing Major League Rugby today. If you were kind of, what are the things that you're really chasing down, um, from a fan acquisition point of view, from a commercialization point of view? What what would you be focusing on?
1: Well, the main thing I'd be focusing is visibility. You've got to be accessible and visible, and and and, and make an impact, and and obviously, broadcast in whatever way that comes is the most important element of that, and 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 in whatever way you can get free to air. Highlights, uh, clips yeah. and so on, it, it, everything else is very selective and therefore you will be talking to a, a converted audience almost al- already. So any spillover into the free to air environment is critical from a, a news point of view, I'd be getting into the community with my teams. And I think that's what the teams are doing in MLR, you know, yeah. and, and, and making sure you're, a, you're an equal part of the community as, to, as any sports entity in the towns that they pro you know, that they come from. Um, I think that's also critical. And building heroes and, yeah. and give, giving some backstories to two or three players who can manage that that that, that yeah. narrative, and 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 putting them front and center and making them available and making them the face of the sport and so on. The other thing is also you know helping out with the World Cup bid because I think obviously yeah. World Cup rolling through the U.S. will create huge momentum for Major League Rugby uh, and, and sport in that market. So making sure that you're in step with not waiting for the world cup to happen, but all of the build up to it and the promotion of it and the preparation for it, you should be riding that wave as well. Yeah, completely agree.
0: And I think your point about earned media is a, is a, is, a, is an important one, but just making sure that those, the stories that are being told, the characters, uh, the heroes, uh, is such a, is such a key. cross
1: of, of conversations with coaches, with NFL, co- it, you've got to borrow the audience that other sports have, and therefore you've got to connect to those sports at any level you can. That will provide the player level is one level, the coach level's another, the ownership level's another, yeah. the community level's another. There's there, wherever you can connect with a sport that already harbors a, a bigger audience. Um, it's not like you're stealing their audience. You're yeah. overlapping, like all sports overlap in following these days. You're raising your awareness. And you and you and you're entering into that interest regimen, which is important for a sport.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, when we announced our new season this year, you know, the Patriots sent out something, the Revolution sent out Boston Bruins. It was very cool. You know, and, and I think I think New England teams do that in general. They're very welcoming and supportive of each other. You know,
1: but it, just, it you, just that situ- that sort of activity just situates a team, and, it, and if all the communities are doing that, that's great for rugby. And I mean, we we you know we work with. Um, football we we're working at the moment with the with the bundesliga yeah uh on 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 aligning some interest in some certain in certain areas and cross promoting we cross promote with bayern munich uh we cross promote with tottenham hotspur here in in in, in the uk so there's lots of opportunities to create content with each other that's good for both sports that's great
0: that's really great. how does that work nfl to kind of the you know, big brother here in the States. What's the reporting? How's that structured? Is, are they two
1: separate entities? Like what's the. No, they're pretty seamless actually. I mean, you yeah. know, we're, a, we're a, 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 branch on a big tree. Um, but we connect very strongly into the system. Um, there is an international committee with about 10 of the uh, 32 owners on it. Uh, we meet quarterly, um, and, 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 and keep everyone, you know, well up to date with what we're doing. There's a huge interest by ownership of, of what's happening in international. I think there's a general realization around the league that the next and they, and they talk in fan terms not revenue terms there's a you know huge understanding that the next 50 million fans will come from international not from the us so the owners are uh, are very involved on on, on how that's going to happen there's also for the first time the ability for teams to market and commercialize themselves outside of their usual 75 mile perimeter host market yeah. in the u.s so in 2022 now you've got, you know, six teams in 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 the UK that are commercializing and marketing here. Uh, you've got four in Germany, two in Spain, um, as well as about nine in Mexico. So, and that that number will grow over time as other teams see the benefits of that. And all of that raises our investment levels in in these international markets and creates more momentum.
0: Right yeah I saw that I read that it was very cool so it's not just NFL marketing but actually the Patriots can market in Germany and the Rams can market in China and Australia exactly.
1: it's, it's really it's really cool how did you guys determine who went where They determined it really we thought we were going to have to reshuffle when the the the, the recommendation, or not the when the proposals came in but actually they fell reasonably um orderly in terms of the numbers of teams in each market we sort of thought maybe at the time might maybe six is going to be the limit to a market but we've got nine in mexico there's a lot of interest there a lot of concern yeah that works well but the six in the uk seem to be it's early days to, to be evaluating but um there's a good coexistence and alignment in some areas amongst the six teams and of course they compete in some areas as well um our, our job at the league is to try and make sure that in certain areas we can Hunt as a group, and in other areas, um, we understand the the desire of competition. So,
0: it's, it's what some of marketing campaigns look like? Are they okay? So we're going to line up pub partners. Like, what's
1: the all of that sort of thing? It could be partners, yeah. sponsors, activations in ta- in in the in the cities or parts of the country, events, live events, and and, and so on. So, you know, some real opportunities to um, to, to to promote. Their what own kind of live clients. events would those be? Or you might have it, it might be in, in, in a pub. It might be a okay, yeah, event, yeah. You know, street with a football club, um, some street marketing, anything like that that, that, yeah. that may you know, lead to a, a, a raising of the profile of those brands in this market. Yeah, fantastic. Rapid Fire,
0: um, proudest achievement uh, with rugby and World Rugby,
1: biggest highlight? Um, probably the Japan World Cup, I'd say pretty magical Olympics in Japan, world cup, Rio Olympics was, yeah. a, was it was a remarkable entry. I thought too, Yeah, I think the women's games growth as well. The sevens tournament at the time at the HSBC and so on Yeah, commercial growth of the, the, of the world cup, all of those things. But I think Japan was the most satisfying because it was a first, it was breaking into a new mark and it was doing what rugby has been trying to do for decades. And yeah. it, was the, it was the first time they broke the mold. And did something with enormous impact outside of the traditional markets yeah and
0: locals showing up to games and buying tickets and social media interest you had,
1: yeah you had local television audience of scotland japan of 54 million people i mean try and get an audience like that anywhere for anything anywhere in the world yeah that's fantastic it's that's
0: fantastic uh any regrets
1: no 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 regrets um no i think you can only do things with the facts you have at the time and make the calls you make at the time and they're not all right they're not all good you make some mistakes but no no regrets where is rugby in 10 years you think well i think it'll be a more professional sport i think it'll be a more global sport um and i think it'll be a safer sport so all all, the three objectives and i think they're they're well on track that's great nfl where does it go next
0: what's your next country
1: From my perspective, well, there's UK and Germany, which are which are huge markets. But I think close behind is you know the growth of France, Spain. Say Spain is yes. a uh, 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 very strong, but particularly France and Spain at this point in time in in, in Europe. Yeah, um, Australia is growing hugely. Japan huge interest. When you're outside of the time zones for live games, it becomes a bit more difficult. But despite that, Australia and Japan uh, growing very strongly. Um, so I, 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 Africa also is a big uh, preoccupation in terms of growing, um, not only is it a source of great athletes into the NFL, but it's obviously a, a huge mm-hmm. youth market that's growing and, and there are huge benefits in growing that market for us from a broadcast and commercial standpoint. It's really cool. Where, where are you in 10 years? Uh, watching a lot of sport, perhaps <laughs> not making decisions about it. That would yeah. be good fun. Joining <laughs> <laughs> a good cocktail. <laughs> My last
0: question is just to bring it all back. If you were running the freejacks today, what would you be focusing on?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it's all happening the way it should happen, but. Um, I don't know. You tell me what? Are you, what are the choices he trying to make? Yeah, I think some choices he try to make. The
0: points you brought up, just what are you measuring in terms of uh, is it is it revenue or is it audience generation? And this is probably the evolution as a league we're trying to go through. Uh, you know, we're spending lots of money, but are we really, really clear that the measurable is audience, is net new fans, and not necessarily commercialization of that audience today? Right. So it's.
1: I, I think that's the, that, and that's even I you know watched the commissioner. Press conference, at Super Bowl, and yeah. someone was pitting him, trying to pin him down on a revenue, and, and, he, and he said quite, quite justly that it's not the revenue that we're preoccupied by because we know the revenues will follow if we get the fan growth right, and we're preoccupied with growing our fan base, uh, and 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 that's I think what has got to be the priority. It's how do I, how do I grow the fan base? How do I grow a more meaningful relationship with that fan base? Um, yeah. and, and the rest, the rest will follow.
0: Yeah, and that—that that I think is a really important piece as, as as we're growing. You know, the league, the product is good. You know, you know, a few years ago you would say it would probably be a top twenty competition globally, maybe at best, and now you'd probably say definitely a top ten rugby competition. It's 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 fun, it's fast. Um, you know, in the not too distant future, and not too different of an expense, it'll be probably you know top six, top five in the world as a competition. But that's for the rugby fanatics. So the product's good now. It's How much work are we really doing for that net new fan
1: and that's um that's our challenge i think that's where you've got to be preoccupied and i think the quality and where you stand in the rankings of can grow over time i mean if you give yourself you know 10 years leading up to a rugby world cup's a good measure um and the momentum that'll create commercial momentum um, and fan momentum you might find yourself with the means to be well up in the top top group at that time at that point in time you have got to start somewhere and that's what you've done bravely uh, about, was it five years ago now? Yeah. And, um, I remember when all of that was being, you know, I was in some of the meetings early on, the first commissioner and so on. And, yeah. And we gave as much support as we could to try to align that with the objectives of USA rugby as well. Yeah. Um, uh, but you could see that there was real ambition and passion and, you know, in five years, I think you've, you, you through two years of COVID, yeah, uh, that, you know, to come out of that and be still viable and. And on a growth, on a on a, on a growth, uh, leaning is 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 a credit to you. And you look at our fans, and it's it's
0: not the volume yet that is going to make it really successful. But you look at the passion piece, and it's like the tattoo index—how many tattoos? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. okay. and that's the key. We've got a lot, which is good. Just good. Yeah. Brett, so fantastic. Thank you very much. Everybody out there, thanks for listening to the latest episode of Full Contact CEO. Stay tuned for a slate of exciting guests in the world sports business and of course rugby. Don't forget to subscribe and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Brett, where are you on social media? How do how do folks follow
1: you? I'm more on LinkedIn now. I was on Twitter for a long time and actually came off it during the Rugby World Cup in Japan to give I'm myself smart. a respite and never never went back on, funnily enough. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> I was becoming a slave to it and I was
0: worried that I was gonna make a mistake in all the LinkedIn, were- I don't know. It, LinkedIn's so tough. I just it's constant barrage of sales and it's a tough yeah,
1: one. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's not it's not a pure yeah. It's yeah. As but I, I um I was a Twitter, but you can find me on LinkedIn. But it's Great. a bit more it's a, it's a little bit more clerical, you're right. Yeah.
0: Brett, thank you so much. Fantastic. Be well. And best of luck. Thanks for having, Thanks for having me on. Okay.